prayer once more. Heavenly Father, we confess to you that some of us come to you this morning dry, burdened, frustrated, and that when we come to your word, oftentimes we find it falling flat. And so as we hear your word preached, we ask that you would help us to be able to find that it is indeed sweet as honey and also nourishing to our souls. And so, Father, we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. So many of you, having a biology background, may have heard of a chemical called oxytocin. Now, some, of it, some people describe this chemical as a love-inducing and trust-building chemical. Some psychologists describe this as the love hormone or hormone of love. When oxytocin is in our brain, it wants to help us to bond with people, to connect with them. But a New York Times article published in 2011 says that this love hormone has its limits. Uh, recent research suggests that in humans, oxytocin actually produces a brand of love that only extends to those that are in our in-group, to those who are friends, people that we love, people that we care for. And so to put it spiritually, oxytocin in spiritual or sinful human beings produces a very narrow, ethnocentric type of love that extends to our kind of people. Now, the study concludes that oxytocin increases our love and loyalty for our in-group, but conversely, it makes us more likely to exclude those who aren't like us, people who are outsiders. It leads us to distance ourselves from people unlike us. Now, even without receiving any type of dose of oxytocin, uh, we can see that we prefer people who are like us, and we distance ourselves from people who are unlike us people who are different, and we find ourselves fellowshipping, conversing, chatting, sharing meals together with people who have similar interests with us. I mean, we spend time with people who maybe have the same vocation as us. Students enjoy hanging out together, lamenting over difficult exams. Engineers may geek out about new innovations that will aid their fields. Lawyers may gather together to chat about the newest Supreme Court justice decision. People in finance may groan at changes in tax laws. And doctors may discuss amongst themselves new treatment plans, or treatment plans as well as patients. Now, besides connecting with others about work, we also connect with each other around interest. Things that we enjoy, things that we watch, things that we play. Uh, basketball fans will argue who is the GOAT, greatest of all time, Michael Jordan, LeBron James. Football fans may rally around their favorite teams, whether it be the Texans or the Cowboys. Others may chat about new TV shows that they've been enjoying. What if, Mandalorian, Attack on Titan, Demon Slayer. I mean, we even separate ourselves between believers and non-believers. And so from an outsider's perspective, from those who are outside of our clique, those who are outside of our group, it seems like there is an insider group 
that there are people who are part and member of a social group that we can never be a part of. And we, without realizing, become insiders in these social groups. Now, what does the Bible say about the people that we spend time with? I mean, who does God want us to fellowship with? Who does God want us to connect with? Does God only want us to invite people who are like us into fellowship? Well, God doesn't just want us to invite people who are like us into fellowship, but he also wants us to invite people who are different than us. He wants us to spend time with people who are working in different fields. He wants us to invite people into fellowship who may have different sport loyalties when we watch sport finals. He wants us to be able to chat with those who maybe have different TV show interests. And he even wants us to spend time with those who are non-believers. God wants us, he desires for us, to invite outsiders, people who are not like us, to fellowship with us. Now, where do we see this idea? Where do we see this concept? Where do we see in the Bible talk about how we should spend time and fellowship with outsiders, with people who are different than us? Well, we see it in the book of Luke. When Jesus begins his ministry, he unfurls a scroll in the synagogue in Nazareth, and he comes and says this about himself, to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And as we have continued in our series through the Gospel of Luke, we have focused on different meals that Jesus has had with different people. We see that Jesus has dined with prostitutes, tax collectors, and even religious leaders. He spends time with those who are in power and those who have very little. And this morning, we're going to return to a meal that Jesus has with a Pharisee. And in this meal, we'll see why we should invite outsiders to fellowship with us. The account of this meal is in Luke chapter 14. If you haven't turned there already, please turn there. The Gospel of Luke is after the Gospel of Mark and before the Gospel of John, and will be specifically in chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Now, in this account, we're going to see three reasons why we should invite outsiders to fellowship with us. And Luke will provide us these three motivations, three causes for us to include those who are outside our social circles, outside of our relationship circles. And these three reasons are what we're going to focus on. So let's look at the first reason. What is the first reason why we should invite outsiders to fellowship with us? We invite outsiders to fellowship with us because God will reward you. That when you invite those who are different to join you for a conversation, when you invite those who are different than you to join you for a meal, God sees it. God knows when you invite outsiders into your group and he will commend you for it. He will repay you. So invite those who are outside of your groups to fellowship with you because God will reward you. Now, when Jesus, in this account in Luke, looks around at his fellow guests at this meal, 
he sees people from the upper rungs of society. I mean, his host's guest list includes community leaders, religious leaders, and even possibly business leaders. And when Jesus sees this, he speaks to his host. Jesus encourages his host to invite outsiders, people who are outside of his social circles, to fellowship with him. Jesus tells his host that this guest list should not only include those who are well-to-do in society, but also those who are not well-to-do. And this would be contrary to common practice in the first century. Because if anyone held a dinner party in the first century, they would have included guests who can pay the host back. They would have included friends, family, rich neighbors. And the reason is because they add something to the event. Friends would be able to contribute to lively conversation. Family would invite you to the next family gathering. Maybe your uncle would be able to contribute a fattened calf to the celebration. Rich neighbors would be able would, to invite you to the next community gathering, the next gala, the next community bash. It's all about reciprocation. Who can pay you back? And so it's no surprise that Jesus' host would have invited insiders who could repay his hospitality. We see this in verse 12. He said also to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. So there are some people who would have never made his host's guest list. It would have been the outsiders, the person struggling to make ends meet, the infirmed who wouldn't be able to walk or to be able to see. After all, what would a cripple or a blind person contribute to conversation? They would just dampen the environment, the tone, the atmosphere. And they would never be able to invite the host back for lunch or for dinner, or much less a banquet. So his host would never invite outsiders because they could never repay his hospitality. Yet this is exactly what Jesus wants his host to do. Look with me at verse 13. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the cripple, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, in a society where reciprocation was expected, Jesus encouraged his host to do something contrary, to do something extraordinary. Jesus invited his host, he instructed his host to actually include people who can never repay him back for a meal, who can never pick up the tab, people who had no social currency whatsoever that wouldn't contribute to his reputation or his overall standing in the community. But even when the host does this, Jesus says that the host will be blessed. Now, why does Jesus say that the host will be blessed if he includes outsiders? Well, in the verse that I just read in verse 14, Jesus promises that God would repay him if he invited outsiders to fellowship with him. If the host included the poor, the cripple, the lame, and the blind on the guest list, then he would receive a future repayment. I mean, that's what it says in verse 14. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. 
Now note the phrase, will be repaid. Luke uses a passive verb here. So the question ought to be, well, who is the subject? Who will repay the host? Who will cover the tab? Who's going to pay the bills? And it's implied that God will. God will repay the host at a future time when the just are resurrected. It's as though Jesus says to the outsider, or it says to the host, hang out with the outsider, spend time with them, take them out for coffee, buy them lunch, cover the tab at dinner. Whatever cost you incur, God will pay you back later. Now, on the surface, this arrangement seems kind of manipulative because I know some of you, you're thinking, so do we invite outsiders so that we can gain reward? Does God work like a Southwest rapid rewards card? You know, the more I spend on an outsider, the more mileage I receive, the more places I can go. No, that's not the case. I mean, that would breed even more selfishness. But note when God will repay the host. He will repay the host on the resurrection of the just, the righteous. Now, you got to wonder, well, what happened to the unrighteous? Because for those of us who know that when Jesus Christ returns, both the unrighteous and righteous will be raised from the dead for judgment. Now, Jesus isn't focusing on that time, but on a further time. He focuses on time when the unrighteous are eternally separated from God, and at that moment, when God is looking at only the just, the host will find himself among that crowd and recognize that he is also among the just. The reward is to know that the host is living according to what God has commanded, what God has instructed, and God recognizes him for that. And that at that moment, Everything that this host ever did for an outsider would have been worth it. Well, what does that mean for us? Uh, is the promise of repayment only for the host? No. God will also reward you with this commendation when you fellowship with outsiders, when you spend time with those who are different than you. Now, you got to wonder, well, hang on a second. Does that mean I should spend all my time with outsiders, that when I go out for a meal, it should only be outsiders dining with me? Should I never invite my family, my friends, those who are close to me? No, that's not what it means, because if that's the case, then Jesus would never have dined with family to celebrate a wedding at Cana. Now, who are these outsiders? Who are these outsiders in our lives? Well, these outsiders may be people that you consider a drain. People that you find it hard to spend time with. Maybe it's that person that whenever you talk to them, their only response are one-word answers. You ask them a question, how are you doing? Good. Well, how's work? Fine. What has God taught you this week? sin, right? It's just awkward. And sometimes it's even painful, especially as you invite someone who just loves to talk. They invite you out to lunch, you go out to lunch with them, and they can't help talking about their kids. Their kids are number one in their high school. They're in all-state orchestra. They're in the local robotics club. And they even made it to nationals this year. And on and on it goes. Or maybe it's just about someone who shares how they lost their job recently and they don't know how to break it to their spouse. And you're sitting there 
maybe eating your pancakes, and you wonder, I have no idea what to say. This is awkward. Or it might be talking to someone older who's in retirement. They share about how they're caring for their grandkids regularly, and when they have time, they go on trips, and they're able to participate in their hobbies. And as a younger person, you wonder, I have no idea what's like because I'm not retired, and I got work to do. Right? I don't know what to say in those moments. I don't know what to say in those situations. But yet, we are to spend time not only with those who are inside our social groups, those people who are like us, but we also are to spend time with people who are unlike us. We are to spend time with those who are perhaps socially awkward, people who are in a different life stage than us. Why? Because God will commend you for it. When you speak to that awkward individual who can't form more than a one-word response, God sees you and says, that's my son. That's my daughter. And when you spend time with that coworker gushing over their kid, God acknowledges that you're there. Or when you sit awkwardly as someone pours out their frustration and their soul to you about losing a job, God knows that you feel awkward. But God is glad that you're sitting there. And when you listen to a retiree share about their activities and not know how to respond, God is pleased with you. For in each of these instances, you have acted like his child. You have invited outsiders into your life because God invited an outsider like you into relationship with him. And it demonstrates that you understand grace. So the first reason we invite outsiders to fellowship with us is because God will reward you. God will reward us. God will commend you. God will recognize you. He will see what you're doing. So let's move to the second reason. What is the second reason that we should invite outsiders to fellowship with you? Why should we invite outsiders to fellowship with us? Well, the second reason is this that we should invite outsiders to fellowship with you because God plans to fellowship with outsiders. That it is in his design, in his scheme, it is in his plan. Because to invite outsiders to connect with you imitates how God plans to connect with outsiders in the future and even in the present. And God advocates for those who are poor and those who are ostracized. He has designed a plan for those who are lost in sin to experience redemption and have fellowship with him. And if God plans to invite these outcasts to fellowship with him, then so should we. So invite outsiders to fellowship with you because God plans to fellowship with outsiders. Now Jesus discloses this plan through a parable, the parable of the great banquet. He tells this parable to show who will fellowship with God when his kingdom comes. Now, Jesus introduces the main character of the parable as a man. But we see throughout the parable that the identity changes. It goes from a man to the master of the house and to the master. It's as though the man's influence and power grows as the parable climaxes and concludes. And it makes the response of the guest even more intense. 
So this man prepares a large banquet. Uh, look with me at verse 16. It says, But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. Now this banquet, being large, would have required a lot of preparation. Flowers needed to be ordered, decor needed to be designed, food needed to be prepped. And this meant that the invitation would have two parts. And for those of you who have planned a wedding, you kind of understand this. First, you send out the save the dates, and then second, you send out notice with more of a formal invitation. And likewise, this host, this man who's hosting this banquet, does the same thing. He gives a save the date for this general period of time. Then he's going to send a more specific invite when the banquet is ready. So when the banquet is ready, the man sends out a servant to gather his invited guests to be able to come and to partake. And we see this in verse 17. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Now one would think that all the guests would have responded, awesome, I've been waiting months for this. But instead... The response is quite the opposite. The invited guests begin to excuse themselves from attending the banquet. Not just one person says, sorry, I can't make it. All the guest list decided to excuse themselves. And talk about flaky guests. I mean, Jesus puts it this way in the first half of verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. Now, Jesus, being a master storyteller, gives you a sampling of some of these weak excuses. The first guest excuses himself because he had to examine a field. Uh, we see this in the latter half of verse 18. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excuse. Now, for those of you who have ever purchased a home, this, this is kind of odd, right? I mean, who would buy land or property before inspecting it? After all, for those of us who are planning on purchasing a home, we send an inspector to inspect it. They check the foundation, they check the plumbing, they check the electrical system, the insulation. And if the inspector finds an issue, then you stop the purchase. But this first guest seems not really business savvy that he would inspect it after the purchase. Now, the second excuse is just as lame. This guest excuses himself because he has to examine some oxen that he purchased. We see this in verse 19. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Again, who would purchase oxen before inspecting them? I mean, would you buy a car before taking it on a test drive or looking at an inspection report? <clears throat> this is, seems to be kind of lame. Now, the third guest, like the two other guests, also give a poor reason to excuse himself from the banquet. He uses his marriage. Uh, look with me at verse 20. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Now, if the man knew that he was going to get married near the time of this banquet, then why did he decide to double book? Why did he decide to have these two events occurring at the same time. <coughs> it doesn't seem to make sense. Now, since the invited guests decided to excuse themselves, the master decides to extend the invitation to other people. 
I mean, after all, the preparations have been made, tables have been set, decor has been put up, food has been prepared, the banquet must go on. And so the master invites outsiders to attend the banquet. Uh, the master extends the invitation to two groups of outsiders. First, he extends the invitation to those outsiders from the city. Uh, look at verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. Now the reason why he extends that first invitation to those inside the city is because those inside the city would have been overlooked. These are people that you normally pass by, but you don't see them because they are the outcasts. These are the people who may have spent all their life savings on a business proposition that failed. The cripple, the blind, the lame would never show up for a temple service because their physical deformities prevented them from actually worshiping. Now, these outsiders are insufficient to fill the banquet hall, so the master extends the invitation to a second group, and this group are to those who are outsiders outside of the city. This is where all the unsavory people reside, the tanners, the traders, the beggars, the prostitutes, but the invitation goes out to them as well. Uh, we see this in verse 22. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. Now note the word compel. When we hear the word compel, it sounds forceful. But it actually has the idea of urging. For these people outside of the city would express surprise at receiving an invitation. I mean, a prostitute receiving an invitation to a banquet? No way. A Gentile receiving an invitation to eat at a Jew's home? No way. And the servant would need to convince them, yes, my master is serious. Please come. The feeling may be like a student receiving news that she receives an offer from a firm that she never expects to receive a call back from. And she replies to the HR person, are you being serious? And the HR person says, yes, serious, right? Now, what is Jesus trying to say through this parable? What is he trying to communicate about those invited rejecting the invitation and the invitation being extended to the outsiders? Well, God plans to fellowship with outsiders because insiders rejected his invitation. Now, if that's really the case, then you've got to ask, well, who are the insiders? In the immediate context, Jesus refers to the Pharisees. They're the ones who reject the invitation to participate in the kingdom of God. But in a broader context, it refers to how Israel will reject for a time the kingdom of God by refusing to believe in Jesus as their Messiah. And as a result of that rejection, the gospel message goes out to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. Israel rejected the gospel so that it would go to the non-Jews. Paul writes about this in his letter to the Romans. Now, why do the insiders reject the invitation? Why do they say no? 
Uh, why did the people who know the Old Testament scriptures decide to reject Jesus' invitation? Well, insiders will reject the invitation to believe in Jesus because of worldly pursuits. I mean, we just need to look at the three excuses that are given here. Now, while these excuses are kind of lame, there's some things that we can learn from them. First, all these excuses are actually mundane tasks. I mean, people buy fields, people buy oxen, people get married. These are things in normal, everyday life. Yet, should the mundane, <clears throat> should the ordinary take priority over what is important? Should we prioritize these regular tasks when invited to something great? Now, the other thing is, these activities represent several broad categories. Buying fields and oxen increases one's possessions, and when used, will increase one's wealth output. More oxen, more land, equals more wealth. Getting married prioritizes the marital relationship. Now, although the Pharisees knew the word of God, they preferred to increase their financial accounts and prioritize relationship with people. Now, before we point the finger and say, you Pharisees, foolish people, lame, I wonder how many of us who have been in the church for so long have also made the excuse of not following God because of the pursuit of treasure and relationships. When have we prioritized the pursuit of academic success while excusing ourselves from fellowship with other people and other believers and with God? And when have we prioritized our financial well-being to the detriment of our own spiritual lives? Now, God surprises us, and he surprises especially the group here, the outsiders, when he extends an invitation of fellowship to them. And some of us here who have believed in Christ may wonder, God, how could you invite me into relationship with you, especially in light of my sin? You know the struggles I have. You know the bitterness I feel towards other people. You know that I struggle with feeling your presence, yet you extend an invitation to me? And God says, yes. And you know why? It's because I not only sent my servant, my son, from my heavenly home to invite you in, but I sent him an insider, a person who is close to me, to become an outsider, so that when he died on a cross outside the city, he died so that you could become an insider. And you can now dine with me in my heavenly home if you accept this invitation to believe. And for those of you who have accepted this invitation to join this banquet, he sends you out as servants. He sends you out to invite the outsider in. He sends you out to reach the difficult, the awkward, the emotionally distressed, the introvert, the extrovert. He sends you to invite them. Now, we've covered two reasons thus far why we should invite outsiders to fellowship with us. Reason one, God will reward us. Reason two, God plans to fellowship with outsiders. 
Well, what is the third reason? Well, we invite outsiders to fellowship with us because God flips the relational script. He changes the paradigm of relationships. He disrupts the cultural norms. He changes the way that relationships are done. He flips the relational script. Now, Jesus flips that relational script with the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed that they would accept the invitation to fellowship with God at the kingdom banquet. They thought they would have said yes when God invited them. I mean, after all, they studied the law regularly. They kept the ceremonial law. So look at verse 15. We see their response there. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. It seems as though this Pharisee is assuming all of us here will dine at the kingdom of God. But Jesus flips that script with the explanation of the parable of the great banquet. Jesus teaches them that outsiders will more likely fellowship with God than those who have been invited. And we see this in verse 24. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Now, why would none of those who, invited, who are invited taste the banquet of Jesus? I mean, they turned down the invitation. They found something more important to do. But those who are on the outside, as we are, have already received the invitation and accepted it and feast with Christ. So now, what is the implication for us as believers? Well, we ought to invite outsiders to fellowship with us by flipping the relational script. I mean, the common relationship script paradigm plan is that we will gravitate towards those who are like us, whether it be ethnic identity, academics, work, interests. But to flip the script is to go against the grain. It results in us spending time with people who are unlike us. And when we do this, we show to the world that we have experienced something so life-changing, we have experienced what it means to go from an outsider to an insider, that we invite those who are outside our circles to fellowship with us. And we demonstrate that we are not of this world, but we are of Christ. And so what are ways that we can do this? These are some examples suggestions. All right, first, maybe you might want to invite someone you don't know into a conversation after service. I mean, look around. We're in a congregation this large. I'm sure there is someone you don't know here. I mean, there's always someone in the chapel or in the hallways of this church waiting to be invited into a conversation. But because they're a guest, or maybe they're a little bit shy, they don't know how to enter into these already preset groups. So I would encourage you to find someone you don't know. Introduce yourself. Introduce them to people you know. Invite them into that relational circle. It could be introducing yourself to a student, a high schooler, a college student. It could be introducing yourself to someone who's older. The possibilities are endless. Now, another way that we can extend an invitation to an outsider is to spend time with those who are outside of our faith, that we are to invite a non-believer 
to fellowship with us. It could be lunch, maybe coffee or a meal. And spend time with them by learning about their lives and investing in them. Now, the first conversation may not lead to the gospel, but it could lead to a subsequent conversation. And this subsequent conversation, it could lead to the gospel, or the relationship should get to a point that you feel comfortable to even invite them to church or to a small group gathering. Or you can even invite them to go through the gospel of Mark through a tool called Christianity Explained. Now, did I mention we have a training after service, 11 o'clock, room 210? You know, one way to apply the message, right? Now, one last example is that we can invite people that you consider difficult to spend time with you. This might mean inviting them to a movie with you and your friends in a socially safe, distant way, okay? Now, this could mean maybe inviting them to, enjoy, to join you for a basketball game. Maybe you're making a run to Chinatown for pastries or boba. You know, invite them to join with you. Flip the script. And these are just small things, small ways that we can invite those who are unlike us to fellowship with us within our church and those outside of our church. So this morning, we talked about three reasons why we should invite outsiders to fellowship with us. First, God will reward us. Second, God plans to fellowship with the outsiders. And third, God flips the relational script. So invite outsiders to fellowship with you. Now let me close with a short reflection on a story that is well known. The story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Now many of you know the story. Rudolph is the reject. He's the outsider. The other reindeer make fun of him for his large, shiny red nose. It disqualifies him from reindeer games. But when the fog rolls in on that Christmas night, who did Santa choose to lead the reindeer? He chose the outsider, the one with the weird, shiny red nose. And God chooses us, outsiders, with our weaknesses and our flaws to accomplish the mission of inviting outsiders to fellowship with God. And may his spirit who dwells within us help us to extend that fellowship with those outside our circles. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace that you have granted us unmerited favor that though we deserved an eternity apart from you, that you extended salvation to us. And you invited us not only into relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ, but you have invited us to partake of your banquet. Father, you have also invited us to join with you in the great task of sharing the gospel hope that we have with those who are lost. And so we ask that your spirit would help us to connect with those believers who are downtrodden, but also for those who have not heard the name of Jesus Christ. May your spirit empower us to do this great work, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.